Yeah, let's go ahead and get started here. We've been looking at this idea of churchless Christianity, specifically as we've been talking about it. We've been talking about this uh, question of people who say we're Christian, but we just don't see a huge need to really participate at worship at any particular congregation. We've talked briefly about some of the reasons that people give for why they don't participate at a congregation. We'll circle back to some of those a little later. And then we looked, we started walking through uh, just this thing I drew up for myself to help guide me as I go and visit um, what we call inactive people in our congregation. Because like we also talked about, every congregation deals with this mentality of churchless Christianity, not just as a phenomenon of people who aren't actually affiliated with a congregation, but among their own members. Like we said, there's in most congregations, anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of the people on the books are functionally churchless Christians. That is to say, they don't go to worship, they haven't gone to worship in years. And they still say, but nevertheless, I'm a Christian. I just don't really need to participate in any of those things to be Christian. And again, like we said, we looked at all kinds of reasons for that. But then we started turning to this thing where uh, because every pastor in every congregation has that phenomenon in their congregation, and because we care about these people, we want to approach them and encourage them to be integrated back into the worship life of the congregation. And so we started looking through all of these uh, sections of the scripture about, of course, how I would approach it as a pastor talking with these people. But by way of helping us get into our own heads, what does the scripture actually say about participation in worship and around things like the Lord's Supper, which, of course, to do, you kind of need other Christians that you're gathering with, congregating with, in order to actually share, right? Right. And as we worked through with things like 1 Corinthians 11 and 10, as we worked through things like Matthew 18, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 being about the Lord's Supper, Matthew 18 again being about the Lord's Supper, uh, things like the body, or not Matthew 18, um, confused, Matthew 26 about the Lord's Supper. We looked at Hebrews 10 um, about how Paul gives the uh, statement, do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together. We looked at 1 Corinthians 12 about the body of Christ, where Paul talks about um, how you shouldn't look at the rest of the body and say, I don't need you, and all these kind of things. And there's certainly other things in this handout I gave you last week that we could easily move to. And that's to say nothing. None of these even touches on the fact that look through the New Testament and every single letter of the New Testament it is addressed to one of two classes of people, either directly to congregations, talking fundamentally about the congregation, as though the people Paul is addressing is not a whole bunch of isolated individual Christians, but the congregation. It doesn't even enter his head to talk about individual Christians apart from the congregation. In any of those letters, anywhere, the other class is the letters to individuals, and in every single case, whether we're talking about Titus and the Timothys or, or uh, Philemon, in every single case where a letter is addressed to an individual, it's addressed to the individual with respect to their participation in the congregation. It's all about how that individual should 
um, look at their role in the broader Christian community. It has almost nothing to do with, all right, here's about you and your personal relationship with Jesus. Everything in the New Testament, from beginning to end, assumes congregation is what we're dealing with. We haven't even talked about that, and we won't really go into much detail about it. I just want to highlight that by way of saying a summary about what we saw last time through our things together. I won't go through the rest of those uh, verses um, in detail that we had in those sheets, just because it basically reiterates what we'd already been saying the entire period last time, uh, which we'll summarize here in that uh, sheet I handed out today about bringing things together. One thing we can definitely say about what the scriptures say with respect to participation in the Lord's Supper and participation in worship around the word with other Christians is that scripture unequivocally, repeatedly, and very clearly commands participation in both. There's just no getting around it. It's over and over and over again in many ways. Again, going back to 1 Corinthians 11 and all of the institutions of the Lord's Supper where Jesus actually says, do this in remembrance of me, which more than a little implies, don't not do it, do it. Um, or again with Hebrews and the body of Christ and all those other things we talked about, the command is clearly directly given, don't absent yourself from the body of Christ. Don't neglect meeting together. Instead, do those things. It's simply a command of the scripture and of the Lord. Therefore, to neglect it is a sin against the Lord and against the scriptures. It's just plain as day in the scriptures. There's no getting around it. Second thing that we've uh, clearly seen from what we worked through yesterday is that scripture promises all kinds of blessings and grace through participation in worship around word and sacraments. Going back to, I mean, the Lord's Supper, obviously we could talk, we spend a whole ton of time in confirmation class talking about all the blessings that scripture clearly associates with taking communion. Heck, just sum up what the catechism says. Forgiveness, life, and salvation are given in the sacraments of the altar. It's a huge blessing. It's delivering the entire benefits of Christ's sacrifice to you, renewing that covenant with you, proclaiming Christ's death to you until he comes again, and making you a member of his body. Huge stuff. But participation in worship with other people is also has, or also has huge blessings associated with it. Just in uh, the Hebrews 10, where we talked about how there's encouragement towards good works, consolation, all kinds of things that Paul directly associates with the practice of gathering together. Stirring one another up to good to love, encouraging one another in their hope. Encouraging one another to draw near in boldness and confidence to the presence of God. Uh, in the body of Christ section, again, we saw several promises and blessings implied about how um, we receive our uh, all kinds of dignity, help, support, encouragement, comfort, consolation from gathering with other Christians. One thing we'll come back to in just a little bit, if we went to Romans 10, which we didn't, how does faith even come about in the first place? By hearing. And how do you hear it? Someone proclaims it to you. Even coming to faith is not an individual act between me and God. It always, 
The way the scripture speaks comes through an intermediary, a person encountering you with the consolation and the hope of Christ. So again, scripture clearly commands this as something we are required to do. And scripture clearly has all kinds of promises associated with it. Big things. And I want to state that very clearly because what you often encounter with people who, when you're talking with them, who are unaffiliated with the congregation or don't feel that uh, all of this is necessary, is they honestly don't believe, they don't, they're usually just not aware of either of these two things. They earnestly don't think that scripture commands it. They're just ignorant about the fact that it is commanded. Precisely because they get fed so many lines from so many quarters and sometimes from Lutheran quarters that say the only thing that matters is that you have a personal faith in Jesus. And because that's the only thing that matters, you don't even have to pay attention to the rest. <laughs> They're also very often ignorant about all the promises associated with it. And so I want you to understand very clearly it is commanded directly, frequently, often, unequivocally. And there are so many huge promises associated with it in the scripture. So that, at the very least, you can take that when you're talking with people about that and say, well, actually, you may not be aware of this, but let's look at these verses. Commanded, promised. Make sense? Any questions or thoughts you want to add in there? And I realize this can cut a little close to home because I'm sure every single one of us knows somebody we care deeply about, perhaps even members of our family, who fall into that boat of churchless Christianity. At least most people do, because it's a growing number of people around us who are influenced by that view. Well, this has probably been a problem, well, I don't say probably, has been a problem for you know, probably generations mm -hmm. as far as people, you know, not attending regularly, or if at all. I can't help but feel, that, you know, it's probably gotten worse just because of our social media and cell phones. I think people are just, uh, just don't communicate one-on-one -on -one very well and therefore don't attend church. I mean, when you're a church, I mean, it's obviously, it's one-on-one -on -one communication. Mm -hmm. Whether it's listening to your, your Bible class or your, your sermon, or whether it's just visiting the church, I mean, it's just like, you know, I don't know. It seems like that's just like fertilizer to weeds. It's just mm -hmm. let them grow. Right? Sure. You know, you know, maybe maybe it isn't, but I don't know. I just can't help but feel that that's well, and you're made the situation even worse. Right. Because. Well, and you're definitely uh, right that there's, I mean, there are so many contributing factors to this uh, hesitancy to affiliate with worshiping at a congregation. I mean, so many factors. And one of them that you, you name is there. It's just, in fact, it's a documented, uh, studied thing that in our day and age, people are less and less comfortable with interpersonal interactions. There are actually schools that um, are so highly attuned to the fact that their kids don't talk to anybody directly that sometimes their assignments are go and ask a girl out <laughs> if you want to pass the class as a means of social education. <laughs> because you guys are terrible at talking to each other. There's, since the uh, pandemic, there's been lots of surveys. I mean, again, it's hard to say how scientific any of these things are, but there's been surveys that show that, uh, especially the younger generations, but all across the board, 
people are preferring drive-throughs and those kinds of things, not because of the convenience, but because they don't want to have to interact with people in the lobby, which they might have to do. <laughs> Again, who knows how, uh, how scientifically verifiable all that is, but it's certainly a possibility, and it just illustrates that there are so many factors contributing to this from all kinds of angles. From discomfort to associating with people, to, uh, on the one hand, that COVID didn't help with this, the ready availability of worship on the internet that uh, helps people get into their heads. Well, hey, if I can get it here, what's the point of going there? This is just more convenient for me to all kinds of things about more demanding schedules from the outside world. I mean, let's just face it, uh, going with parents and teenagers, back in my day, there was nothing ever happening in sports on a Sunday. Never. Now, what doesn't try to schedule on a Sunday? And that was only when I was a kid, which I guess is now 20 years ago. <laughs> but it uh, doesn't seem that long. But again, it's not just people um, only thinking about this from the religious perspective of, I feel I can be a Christian without doing this. A lot of it, it they, you might say, they just kind of fall into it from all kinds of influences like you're mentioning or all these other influences of the world. And it just kind of happens to them. And once they're in it... Do you think, you know, I mean, most people go to work every day, you know. Mm -hmm. So come Saturday and Sunday, that's their only day at home, you know, to do what they want to do. Sure. So, okay, church isn't high on that right. list. And I mean, it's, oh, uh, let's, like Bill also said, this has been a problem for generations. This is not unique to our post-pandemic world or our day and age. There's always been fewer people actually going to church, in, by what I mean, worshiping around the word and sacrament, than claim to affiliate with a congregation or claim to be Christian. And that's always been a reason. This is my time off. <laughs> I don't want to cut into my precious hours by going to worship. Um, not because I have something against worship, but because I just value this more. But we'll, those are reasons we'll circle back to. But uh, in all of this, regardless of the reasoning, regardless of uh, the effects that lead people into that, one third thing needs to be drawn out clearly and unequivocally from Scripture along with the fact that such people are in clear violation of commands of Scripture and depriving themselves of huge promises and blessings of Scripture, is that such a situation is extremely perilous to their faith. For all kinds of reasons, we could approach it from both angles. We've talked about this a little bit last Sunday, but I think almost everyone who thinks about it would agree that openly and knowingly going against a clear command of Scripture is not exactly healthy for your faith life. When a, par a bit, when a part of your life is clearly cut off from the commands of Christ in a way that says, I'm not going to trust Christ on this one. I'm not going to trust God's word on this one. It stands as the very least a huge stumbling block to the part of you that says, I trust Christ and I want to uh, follow him. It adds um, more weapons, you might say, to Satan's arsenal as he's trying to destroy your faith. Uh, so, openly opposing the commands of Christ is always hazardous. Similarly, um, denying yourself the very blessings and tools that God wants to use to nourish and strengthen your faith is not exactly going to help give you the vitality of faith to last over the long haul. 
I mean, heck, try not eating for three weeks straight and then seeing how well you perform at your job. You might be able to do it, <laughs> sort of. But needless to say, you're going, if you are even capable of doing anything at that point, you're going to be extremely hampered. By the same token, when you cut yourself off from one of the key ways that God encourages, comforts, feeds, and strengthens your faith, you're leaving yourself in, at the very best situation, an extremely anemic condition. And you won't even necessarily notice that you've actually lost your faith if it comes to that point. You can say, I believe in Christ, and yet not actually trust him at all. You can think you trust him and not actually trust him. Just like there are many kids across the world who say, oh yeah, I love my kids, my parents, I mean, but uh, I don't visit them ever. Oh, they died. I don't have time for the funeral, but I love them. Really? <laughs> about that? They might convince themselves they do, but everybody around knows it's not true. Same thing can happen with faith. It slips away from us, and we may not even notice. Because then, if, get, knowing those three scriptural truths, um, what you might want to say, um, some doctrinal teachings of the scripture about participation, that it's commanded, that there's promises associated with it, and that the neglect of it is therefore perilous, it raises some pretty important questions right off the bat before we get into the engagement of how do we deal with people in their various objections to coming to church or the reasons they offer for not coming. Um, one of the big questions that might come up right away is, can't, given that church is central to Christian life, simply by virtue of the fact that commands and promises of God are associated with it, and that's sufficient to say that it's central to Christian life. Can a churchless Christian be saved? Is it possible? It's not a small question. And of course, I imagine our gutless, our, our, not gutless, our gut reaction would be, well, of course they can. Just because a person doesn't come to church doesn't mean they're going to hell. One way to look at this um, is to reframe it in one of two ways along these lines. Since what we're dealing with are clear commands of God and clear promises of God's grace and blessing, you can ask a different, this question, can they be saved along two different lines? First of all, can a person be saved while, um, I guess we could say, uh, persisting in sin against a command, or that is to say, an impenitence? Can a person who is impenitent? Can a person who is engaged in direct sin against the com commands of Christ be saved? What do you guys think? I don't think we know. If they try to repent, they could. Okay. Uh, I mean, as a, I think something we can all pretty straightforwardly agree on is if they come to repent, of course they can be saved. That we can we can all agree on. I mean, we all know plenty of scriptures. Um, about whoever repents and believes the good news will be saved. No matter what sins they've had, no matter how long they persisted, no matter how willfully and maliciously they may have done them, no matter how bad those sins may be to us or to God, when a person comes to faith, Christ, they receive the sacrifice that Christ offered for them, they are forgiven. That we can all agree on, right? So in the sense that they repent, of course they can be saved. The bigger question is, if they don't repent of this sin, that is, if they are, while they are continuing in this situation, can they be saved? Rhonda says, we don't, I don't think we can know for sure. They may repent at the very end. <laughs> well, sure, sure. I mean, again, and that's assuming 
repentance might come at the end. And who are we to know if they did repent or didn't repent at the end? And there's certainly, a, and on that start from our perspective, we don't want to be people who are making judgments about whether a person is for sure and for certain repenting or not at the time of their death. That's for God, not for us. In that sense, we can never really know if anyone actually ever goes to heaven or hell with absolute certainty, precisely because, about anyone else, precisely because I cannot know with absolute certainty whether a person actually believed or didn't, right? But of course, we have good reason to be hopeful about a lot of reason, people. And we have good reasons as a pastor uh, at a funeral sermon to say about certain people, like Jerry, we have every reason to be confident that guy is up in heaven. Because straight up to his dying bed, he confessed Christ. <laughs> Clear, pretty straightforward. But good to be cautious, in at least admitting, we don't know what's in another person's heart. God does. And it's not our place to pronounce judgment on another person's heart by saying for sure and for certain, I know what God is going to say about you on the last day. But by the same token, um, the question is not, what do we know about the other person's heart here? The question is, if a person's heart is in this place, granted, we don't know for sure, for certain, one way or the other, but if the person's heart is in that place, can they be saved? What has God himself said about this? Because we can say, for sure and for certain, anyone who dies in unbelief will not be saved. Just as we can say, for sure and for certain, anyone who dies with faith will be saved. Now, I don't know necessarily which one of those two you fall into. I have lots of good reasons to say and proclaim and assure you you fall into the saved category. <laughs> but you see the difference here, what I'm saying. It's not a matter necessarily of our perspective and judgment about whether the person is impenitent. The question is, if a person is in fact impenitent, can they be saved? Well, if they don't really know that they're breaking the commandment, I mean, if you don't know. All right, now there, there's the question. Is there a difference between uh, a sin out of ignorance and a sin of maliciousness um, or uh, with full knowledge and assent? And certainly, we can talk from Scripture about how there are uh, plenty of verses in the Scripture where Jesus talks as though there are different degrees of punishment and different degrees of uh, seriousness of God towards people based on their degrees of knowledge. Um, there's the uh, parable in Luke of the master who goes away on a trip, and when he comes home, he says, those who did not know what they were doing will receive a lighter beating, and those who... Uh, were, should have known, will receive a more severe beating, things like that. Which gives us to a point that it is important to say, I think also with what Rhonda was getting at before, it would be probably going too far to say with absolute certainty that if a person persists in this sin against these commands, they will without doubt perish eternally. It would just be going too far because... Um, again, there are all kinds of reasons they might be doing that, that ranging from malicious, uh, I don't care what God says, to um, the kinds of idolatries that afflict us each and every day as sinners, yet which does not overthrow faith nonetheless. That is to say, it is possible in our relationship to God as both simultaneously sinners and simultaneously saints, who are always and only sinful to, in every thought, word, and deed we say, which by the way doesn't stop when you become a Christian. We are always 
sinful and never do precisely what God commands and often, in fact, always fail to do it. So we are always going against God's command in some way or other, but that doesn't necessarily overthrow our faith by which we cling to Christ in the midst of our sin. Of course, that is a little bit different than, say, when we're using the word impenitence, which is to say, I know I'm going, I know what God's word says, I simply don't care. But point being, we don't want to say with absolute certainty that somebody who continues in this particular sin is necessarily going to hell, precisely because saving faith can exist alongside um, ongoing sin. But, of course, let's go to what scripture says here and not make that sound like, therefore... Our answer is, of course they can be saved. So what are we worried about? Uh, somebody want to turn, for instance, to Hebrews 10.26, and somebody else want to turn to Romans 6, um, 1 through 4, and verse 16. I'll remind you of the Romans one after. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. What does that sound like it implies to you? Sounds like if uh, we keep on sinning and we're not repentant, then... Sounds a lot like it. This is clearly Paul. And by the way, this incidentally comes right after Paul's admonition. Uh, do not neglect the uh, gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. But um, Paul's statement right there very clearly in the book of Hebrews is if we're deliberately sinning and we continue to persist against the commands of Christ, there is no forgiveness for us. Obviously, of course, we know from scripture that if we turn from that course, or rather, if we come back to faith in Christ and repent of our um, willful persistence in sin, there is salvation for us because we're returning to the sacrifice Christ offered. If we persist in deliberately denying, ignoring God's commands, hell is very likely at the end of that road. Romans uh, 6, 1 through 4. <coughs> what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase, <clears throat> by no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was risen from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And you want to read verse 16 as well. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? All right. So there, Paul sets up this argument. How a, could a Christian say, because I am saved and God forgives me my sins, isn't it the case that if I continue to sin... Therefore, God is proven more gracious because he's just pouring out more forgiveness. Therefore, let's me continue to sin that God's grace may flow even more fully. And Paul just says, basically the Greek equivalent of, that's stupid. <laughs> Don't you know that, anyone, who, that uh, anyone who's been baptized into Christ is baptized in his death? So on and so forth to say, the very fact that we believe in Christ and we're baptized in him and buried with him implies... The exact opposite of that argument. 
that we should want to walk in newness of life rather than in sin. And then he goes on to that last verse where he says, if you submit yourselves to anything, you make yourself a slave to it. You can either submit yourself to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to life. Again, what does it sound like Paul is writing there about people who continue to persist in things that Christ has forbidden or ignore things that Christ has commanded? Sounds a lot like he's saying at the end of that road, very, very, very likely it's death and hell. So what we can say with respecting this, can a person be saved while persisting in sin against the uh, command of Christ? And it doesn't matter which commands we're talking about, by the way. But uh, since this is clearly commanded, and since we're talking about this, can a person be saved by, even though they continually persist in disobeying Christ's call and command to gather around his supper and share it, and to gather with other Christians to receive the word, encourage one another, and so forth? The answer that Scripture itself seems to give is, again, Scripture interprets Scripture, so we don't want to say unequivocally yes or no. We do want to say very directly high probability of a no. That is to say, from what Scripture says, it is at least extremely likely that a person who is willfully, uh, knowingly, persistently continuing in sin, ignoring the commands of Christ, even ignorantly acting outside of the commands of Christ, perpetually, they are running a very high risk of moving towards eternal condemnation. It's not to say they will most certainly end there. It's simply to say the warnings of Scripture are clear that such ways ultimately cut directly against the, the life, the grace of Christ, and so are very, 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 very likely going to lead you to a very, very bad end. Which is why, by the way, congregations pastors often do and certainly should make it a very high priority to go to people who are overtly sinning against this command, whether in ignorance or not. Again, maybe out of their ignorance, maybe saving faith can exist alongside them. And so, of course, we don't say absolutely no, they can't be saved. We say, at the very least, you're in extreme danger, precisely because scripture puts them in a position where all signs indicate to them being in extreme danger by going against the command of Christ, our desire is to go and bring them out of the dangerous situation, to warn them of the danger, alert them and inform them of Christ's commands so that they might recognize their sin, turn, and repent. Congregations who fail to do that, well, it's, it's a very big form of dropping the ball in a sinful way. And again, the reason being not, uh, not because we're aiming to condemn these people, but precisely because we're aiming to have them come to the salvation Christ offers. And again, not because we know that they're going to be condemned. We don't. But because we know, at the very least, they're walking a very dangerous road. Does that make sense? Any thoughts, maybe even objections or concerns about that? My thought is there's, there's people who say, well, I, I believe, and there's is a verse in scripture that says having faith like a mustard as big as a mustard seed so right how does that fit into all of this right and that goes back to this idea that we're always simultaneously sinners and saints even christians deeply faithful christians are always sinful 
Again, going to Romans chapter 7, where Paul talks about this. The Apostle Paul. If, if there's anyone we could probably assume has uh, come to the glory of the sweet by and by due to faith in Christ alone, Paul would be at the top of the list, right? Again, only God knows. But there's strong external reasons to suspect that Paul is enjoying the glory of the hereafter, right? And yet the same Paul wrote in uh, chapter 7 of Romans that the good I want to do, that I don't do. The evil I hate, that's what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God in Christ Jesus and so on and so forth. Paul himself recognizes that even in the holiest of Christians, sin is an ever-present reality. When we say we are always simultaneously sinner and saints, we don't mean sometimes we sin, sometimes we do good. What we mean is we are 100% all the time, always failing to keep the commandments. Right now, each one of us here is, if we're following what scripture says, has to acknowledge we're sinning some way or another. Not necessarily because we're overtly breaking the commands of Christ, per se, in the sense of, I'm not sitting here having any bad thoughts about Bill or uh, Rhonda or Irma, maybe the rest of you, I don't know. But I'm not uh, hating you, angering, angry against you. I'm not overtly breaking the fifth commandment by obviously doing something it forbids, right? But by the same token, would you ever want to assert right now, I am keeping the fifth commandment perfect? I'm doing exactly what Christ commands me to do and intends me to do across the board. Well, by the law comes knowledge of sin, says Paul in Romans 3. Um, there is no one who does good, not even one. Or as uh, the book of Ecclesiastes has it, there is not a righteous man who does good and does not sin. In other words, we are always failing to keep the full holiness the law commands. We are always failing to love the way the law commands. Christ accepts, but we do, of course, now that we are come to faith, have a new obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, um, if we put it in our catechism terms, um, along with this old Adam in us, who is always and only sinning against God, there's also the new man that wants to obey God, that earnestly does try to fear, love, and trust God above all things, but nevertheless fails to do so perfectly at any given moment. Christ accepts our uh, our attempts, you might say, to keep the law, not because we've successfully kept the law, but because we do so in faith. For the sake of Christ, he disregards um, the failures in our attempts to follow the law. So that faith as small as a mustard seed still has that new obedience, of course, that persists in trying to follow Christ. But we're not saved because of the new obedience. We're saved because of the faith as small as a mustard seed always falling into sin the whole long way away, yet nevertheless earnestly striving against that sin, hating it where it occurs, throwing and above all, throwing ourselves on Christ for mercy and forgiveness. So, again, brings us back to, we don't say, therefore, that such a person who is um, persistently acting against the commands is necessarily lost and outside of salvation and... Um, if they were to die at that moment, we'll be going to hell. What we simply do assert, precisely because Scripture asserts it, is that that person, precisely because um, their new obedience is suffering a huge area where it's not contending against sin, is demonstrating um, a life that is, shall we say, actively militating against their faith. And that is a very dangerous place to be.
And scripture is clear about the danger that places. And constantly, Paul, the one who talks over and over again about grace alone, not by works, um, saved but for the sake of Christ, um, so that no one can boast. He's also the one that constantly asserts things like, do not be deceived. Neither the idolaters, the adulterers, the so on and so forth, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And over and over again, he asserts, just like we read in Romans 6, um, if you give yourself to a slave to sin, you are giving yourself to a, you are giving yourself to a master that leads you to death. Point being, Scripture condemns overtly, persistently going against the commands of God as something extreme, not only sinful, of course, but also extremely dangerous to your faith. And precisely because you are actively working against your faith, even if you're ignorantly working against your faith. You are actively working against your faith. You're making yourself a slave to sin rather than to Christ. Precisely for that reason, we need to go, they walk in danger and need to be made aware of the danger. Not to come and judge them by saying, you're, going, you're not coming to church, you're going to hell. But by going and saying, you're disregarding the commands of Christ. And that puts you on a very dangerous road. And it, it's an assault on your faith, and it very well may lead you to hell. As uh, the close of the commandments <laughs> says, um, as our catechism explains it, we should fear his wrath and seek to do what he commands. So again, while sin is an ever-present reality for us who um, can be confident that we're going to heaven, the difference, you might say, the real difference that we see externally and therefore we respond to, according to the scripture, is that on the one hand, we're actively contending against our sin, which manifests our, our faith in Christ. As scripture calls it, that's a fruit of faith. It isn't faith itself. It doesn't cause the salvation of God. It doesn't win the salvation of God. It's an evidence of the faith which clings to the salvation of God. And by the same token, um, those who overtly ignore the commands of Christ and persistently walk in ways outside the commands of Christ are manifesting a lack of faith on the one hand, which it doesn't mean, therefore, there's no faith. It means you're walking a very dangerous path that could very well lead to your damnation. And therefore, we want to warn you of the path and get you that you're walking and get you back to a stronger faith in Christ, which, of course, will lead to a, more, a new obedience in Christ. Let me put it to you this way, too. For some reason, we've got it into our head that sins against the third commandment are not that big of a deal. Imagine, if you will, someone who is just, let's, since we love our sixth commandment sins these days, um, let's talk about the openly transgender person. Persists, and not just transgender, but persists also in uh, um, sleeping around with persons of the uh, gender that God did not intend them to sleep around with. Does it overtly, says, hey, God wants me to be happy. Who are you to judge? God, lo God is love, love, love. I'm saved. God wants me to do this. You're just in your own little uh, modern day or your ancient uh, false ideas about what God is like. Um, so you're the problem, not me. Would you think that that person is on the fast track to uh, heaven? <laughs> Would you be worried about their salvation? Is such a person necessarily going to hell if they die that day in that state? Well, I notice there's probably a little more hesitation in your eyes by um, the nature of the topic. Because that topic um, offends your sensibilities more, right? I mean, uh, understandably, it's, it's an offensive thing to our sensibilities as Christians. 
And so we have less problem saying high probability they're not to that kind of person. But when we get to the third commandment person who just says, ah, I'm fine, I believe in Christ. You just, you just have those old ancient ways of going to church every Sunday and all of that. You just don't understand. We just shrug our shoulders and say, well, what can you do? I'll see him in heaven. Why do we think six commandment sins are so evil that even to us, um, we're insisting about these third commandment people, faith is small as a mustard seed. Um, we don't know what's in their hearts, but that transgender homosexual, we know where they're going. <laughs> Sounds like we just need to change, I mean, where you've got on your paper you handed out here under doctrinal questions, can a churchless Christian be saved? We just need to take that word churchless out there and put, can a sinful Christian be saved? Well, and that's exactly my point. <laughs> my point is, sinful means going against the commands of God. Can a person be saved while persisting in sin? To the extent that saving faith is present, yes. But persistence in sin is at war with saving faith. And therefore, such a person is in extreme danger and therefore needs to be warned. And I say, bring up this transgender verse, third commandment, to help illustrate the point we need to be consistent about this. If we're going to get all hot and bothered about sins against the sixth commandment as somehow in a class that offends God more deeply than sins against the third commandment, the problem is with us. We're simply wrong. God looks at the transsexual uh, philanderer in exact, as exactly the same kind of problem, I mean differently manifested, but the same kind of problem as the person who just doesn't care about God's sacraments, hearing his word, meeting with other Christians to be supported, and encouraging them. Both are offending directly against a direct commandment of God. That's how it is, folks. <laughs> and we all persist in sin every day, even though we try not to. So Sure. Well, and again, that depends entirely on who you're talking to. How, when you say that, it depends entirely on who you're talking to and what you're trying to accomplish. When you're dealing with the person who is trying to justify their sin, it's not an appropriate response to say, but faith can be, in, therefore, because that allows them to think that their sin is not really that big of a problem. When you're dealing with the penitent sinner the, or the contrite sinner, the one who recognizes their sin and realizes it's a problem, that's when you apply the gospel. That's when you bring in the faith as small as a mustard seed. And heck, I'd even go further than saying faith, because that points to something inside of you, and point instead to, but Christ has died for you, my friend. Trust and believe, and your sins will be whiter than snow. But we also need to understand, as Lutherans especially, because this is a core to who we are, what we say depends on who we're talking to. Like the Catechism says again, we withhold forgiveness from the impenitent as long as they refuse to repent, but we speak forgiveness to the penitent. I don't go to the person who's con contemplating having an abortion and say, well, God still forgives even people who commit abortion. <laughs> In the abstract sense, it's a true statement that God for can and does forgive people even for sins of aborting their babies or for murdering their spouses or for um, sleeping around with people of their own gender. But if my goal in trying to find out if God will forgive me is to allow me license to sin and to continue in that, what I am doing is persisting openly in sin, using Christ as an excuse to sin rather than as a reason to have confidence that my sin will not, 
that my sin, which I know offends God and which I deeply lament, will not separate me from God. Law, gospel. Apply the law to the people who need to hear it. Apply the gospel to the people who need to hear it. And you know who needs to hear it from what they actually confess with their words and their deeds. Make sense? So again, it's absolutely true that even sins against the third commandment can be forgiven and are forgiven. But it's also absolutely true that relying on the grace of Christ to persist in a sin is not true faith in Christ. And therefore, um, such a person who is using Christ as an excuse not to obey the third commandment is walking an extremely hazardous road and needs the law, not the gospel. All right, we've been talking a lot about the law. The other thing I want to talk about is the promises here. And we can phrase this question a different way. Can a Christian who willfully who, um I shouldn't say willfully, um, can a Christian who deprives him or herself of the promises and grace of God be saved. Now, well, we won't necessarily read those. I'll just uh, cite them to you. There's a couple of things we need to understand here. So the question again, can a Christian be saved um, while neglecting and depriving themselves of the blessings and grace of worship and the Lord's Supper? Now, of course, again, first thing you want to say is we're talking about the promises of God and what do God's pro what's God's chief promise? Well, in Ephesians 2, uh, Paul lays it right out there. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And even that faith is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. Or Romans 3.28, we hold that a man is justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So it's not like um, going to church, by the way, is what earns you the forgiveness. Um, it's an absolute certainty of Christian faith doctrine. That faith alone saves us. And of course, that's what people often will point to as a reason they don't need church. They'll say, hey, saved apart from works, saved by grace, saved by faith. I have faith, therefore I don't need um, church. I don't necessarily need all those promises and blessings. Well, how do you deal with something like that? How should we respond scripturally to that argument? Um, because it's a true statement. It's the fundamental statement of our faith that we are saved by grace, one through Christ, through faith. Well, one important response is to turn to Romans 10, 14 through 17. And if somebody else wants to turn to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, there's a lot of these we could go to, but I'll just pick these two as helpful. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless you are there sent? As it is written, how far is that? 17. How, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. All right. So... By the way, just as the thing that Paul was saying right before that, whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God and whoever confesses with his lips that Jesus is Lord, I might have mixed those two up, but whoever believes in his heart and confesses it with his lips that Jesus is Lord will be saved. That's, Jesus, that's Paul's initial statement. And then he moves on to this. But then how can they believe if they, haven't heard, if they don't know him? How are they supposed to know about him if nobody's told them? How are people supposed to tell them if they haven't been sent? Which leads to his summary conclusion, faith comes by hearing. And how does hearing come? From hearing the word of God, the message of Christ. 
Um, Christ's death and salvation is alone what saves you, and faith in it receives the blessing. But how do you get the faith that receives the grace of Christ? Through the word of the promise, through being exposed to the promise. The Spirit doesn't just come and zap you magically with faith one day as you're walking down the street. It's not like one day I was a Muslim and then all of a sudden, bam, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ, my only Lord and Savior from sin who died on the cross for me. No, you were put in contact with other Christians who were presenting and sharing the word and the sacraments. That is how faith comes in every case. Show me a Christian who did not come faith at least partly by being exposed to Christians sharing the word and the sacraments. I doubt you will have much success because that is how the Holy Spirit brings us to faith and applies the promise, the grace of Christ to us through the promises that we get through people speaking the word. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Somebody have that. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the word, the Lord's death until he comes. There you go. Um, that's just the final section of Paul quoting the words of institution. Again, in that whole section talking about the import and uh, nature of the Lord's Supper. And he follow, finishes it up by saying, whenever you're partaking in it, what are you doing? Among many things that we talked about last time, uh, you know, receiving the body and blood of Christ, the covenant, forgiveness, and all of that. You're also proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, which means you're both sharing with others and being shared with the message of Christ's death, the thing that creates, sustains, and nourishes faith. Point we're going to drive to very quickly here because we're running out of time. While it is absolutely true we are saved by Christ through faith in him and not by our works, the means by which we are brought to that faith in Christ and the means by which Christ's grace is applied to us are the word and the sacraments. And how do we, in other words, exposure to the promises, the blessings, and the grace of God is what creates in the first place our faith and then also nourishes it, strengthens it, matures it. So, can a Christian be saved without the blessings and grace of worship in the Lord's Supper? Again, technically, in an absolute sense, yes. A person could be saved even if they aren't able to come to worship or uh, receive the Lord's Supper. By the, I'm, it's similar to the question about can a person be saved without being baptized? Let's look at that as a nice handy analog. Yes or no? Do you think a person could, in theory, be saved even if they're not baptized? Yes. Why do you say that? Well, we've had that discussion before in our church, and uh, we can't know what's in a person's heart. We can't say equivalently that sure. you know won't be saved. Right. Um, yeah, I, you can be saved because, on the one hand, faith alone saves. And as it turns out, baptism is not the only means God uses to give faith and grace. God has filled the world with his word and his sacraments. For instance, if I'm a soldier out in Vietnam, atheist all my life, while I'm out on the battlefield, uh, hunkered down for a few days with my uh, Christian compatriot, he shares the gospel with me, I come to faith, I die before I can get baptized. Am I in heaven? Of course I am. 
because faith alone saves. The word of God has brought me to faith. But by the same token, baptism is obviously one of the things that God, Christ has commanded, not just commanded, but promised to use to create faith in you and apply his promises and his blessings to you, right? Therefore, it's a good thing to be baptized early as possible to be integrated into God's family the way that God promises to do in baptism. Can you be saved without it? Sure. If you are a Christian who believes God's grace and promises, would you therefore use that as a reason to say, I don't need baptism, therefore I won't be baptized? <laughs> what? <laughs> are you saying, I believe so wholeheartedly in the grace of Christ as the foundation of my life and my hope that I don't want um, the way Christ actually says he's going to apply it to me? <laughs> it doesn't even compute. If you have faith in the grace of Christ, which, by the way, baptism is one way it gets created in the first place, which is why we baptize infants, because God forgive, applies all of his grace and creates faith in them through that. Um, but let's say I come as an adult. The fact that I have faith and the grace of Christ doesn't mean I'll therefore not want baptism. It means I'll desire it as a further recognition that here are even more blessings and another offer from grace in Christ that applies directly to me. Same goes for worship around word and sacrament, because what is at the heart of our worship around word and sacrament is the word and the sacrament. The proclamation of Christ and the things like baptism and the Lord's Supper, where Christ offers his grace and his covenant to you again, in addition to his word alongside it. When you have faith, you will necessarily desire to be exposed to the grace of Christ. And that grace and those promises are what will um, strengthen, keep your faith alive um, throughout your life. So the answer to can a Christian be saved without the blessings and grace of worship and sacraments would be to say, yes, they can. But on the one hand, if they are, their faith should impel them to desire these promises and blessings. And if they deprive themselves of those promises and blessings, they are starving them, their faith of the very thing that sustains and nourishes it. So again, dangerous situation for the Christian. Summed up in the verse, faith without works is dead. Exactly. I mean, you can look at coming to church as works or being baptized is going to be part of your works. So I mean, if you have true faith, those things are just going to naturally flow. Right. And that gets to that first part, especially. Faith without works, faith without the desire to follow God's commands isn't really faith. It just isn't. Again, if there's no new obedience, there's no faith. By the way, our book of Concord is happy to say that, too. Where faith comes, good works will inevitably follow. Where good works do not follow, there almost certainly is not faith. But all the, by the same token, um, the reason I want to focus on the promises is worship isn't just our work of going to God. It's God coming to us with his promises, his blessings, and grace. And so, by all means, as people who trust him, where would we want to be? where God's blessings and promises are given to us to strengthen our life in him. So again, faith without desire for the promises of God to, to play on to uh, James' words there is at least dying, even if it's not dead. All right, we'll uh, wrap it up here. And one of the reasons I, uh, I, I went so uh, whole hog on this and probably said some things very strongly is um, because... Again, we're all very worried about 
the way our culture is going with things like problems with the sixth commandments and the fourth commandments. And those are real issues in the world around us. But you know what's that fundamentally at the heart of those problems in our, uh, at least among Christians, is the very long-standing problem with the third commandment that we have and our refusal to acknowledge that God's word actually is kind of important that motivates us to treat it as though it's not that important. So, anyway, let's uh, close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.